morning. Heavenly Father, really briefly, we just ask that you would, or I ask that you would speak through me, that people would hear the voice of Jesus, not my voice, that you would be exalted and lifted up, that your church would be built up, and I simply ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I get your Bibles out if you would, and if uh, there's a, or a phone or a tablet, we have also Bibles in the pews in front of you, but also... For those of you that just don't want to flip pages, I actually have most of the verses up on the screen up here. So I want to begin, though, talking to you about, um, we're going to look at this morning at the story of Naaman. I'm not sure if you remember that story. It's from the Old Testament. We'll get into that, but I want to begin by telling you actually a true story of a, if you heard this, of a dog and a rabbit. A dog and a rabbit. Uh, two neighbors who lived next to each other. Each owned a pet, one a dog and the other a rabbit. Um, anyone own any rabbits, out of curiosity, as a pet? Okay, everyone here is normal, all right. Um, the neighbor's dog liked to jump, it's a true story, jump the fence of the neighbor next door and try to play with uh, this big white rabbit um, who was off in the neighbor's backyard. But the dog never hurt the rabbit, uh, he just wanted to play. Even still, uh, this was obviously a problem for both couples, but somehow they were able to, to get along and coexist. And this went on for a few years. Now, the couple with the dog had come home late one night. We let the dog out to play, as we typically do if you have a dog in their backyard. And soon they heard the dog frantically barking and growling, and they went to see what was going on in their dog's mouth was the white rabbit. And the rabbit wasn't moving. He was really dirty and, and you know, rough looking, a little wear and tear, and they were obviously horrified and panicked. Oh my goodness, they thought, our dog has killed our neighbor's pet rabbit. And as they wrestled with what to do, they had noticed that their neighbors weren't home. And it appeared that they hadn't been when their dog had jumped over the fence. And so the couple came up with an idea. And this is a true story. The couple washed the rabbit, blew dry his fur, combed and fluffed him up to make him look like he was still alive. Leaving their dog in the house, they snuck over to the absent neighbor's backyard and carefully placed the cleaned up, fluffed up rabbit in a place he would usually play. And they snuck back to their house and waited and waited, and waited. Finally, the neighbors came home. And what seemed like an eternity, then it happened. The woman's neighbors started screaming. The couple stared at each other and decided that they needed to go ask whatever was wrong. So they went out to their adjoining fence, peered over, and saw their neighbors staring at the fluffed-up dead rabbit. Their neighbors were frozen in place, not moving towards their pet. They were just staring at it. Then the couple asked in the most casual voice they could muster, What's wrong? The woman neighbor stared at them for a bit and said, He came. The couple with the dog looked at each other. Then the dead rabbit, and they asked, What do you mean he came? The neighbors explained, what we met was our rabbit passed away yesterday, 
and we buried him near his favorite spot. When we came home, there he was. Pointing to the fluffy dead rabbit. All the couple with the dog could say was, oh. The neighbor's husband then moved towards their deceased fluffy dead rabbit. He realized the rabbit was still dead. He looked up and was very confused. That was then that the couple with the dog noticed the hole in their neighbor's garden. The couple stared at each other, then gave their neighbors their condolences in the most sincere fashion possible. They turned back and went to their house, closed the door, stared at each other again, and then busted out laughing. What's the moral of this story? It's a true story. Obviously, you need to be careful before you make assumptions. Because assumptions allow you to hide behind your version of the story. And really, that's what we're going to talk about this morning in the story of naming is really about assumptions. We're going to begin by talking from a very high place, what I call highly regarded. And that's the first verse. If your Bibles, again, turn to 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. If you want to get to the fastest, go to Genesis the very beginning and keep going to the right. <laughs> and eventually you'll, you'll get there. Or open up in the middle and go to the left. But 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. It's a story of Naaman. Now Naaman, as you can see, captain of the army of the king of Aram. Just so you know, the king of Aram, we don't know that phrase, it's Syria. So he's the king of Syria. Was a great man with his master and highly respected. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior. But he was a leper. There's a lot that the author here tells us that about Naaman. He was a captain. See that? He's a great man, highly respected, and a valiant warrior. Let me explain to you what all this means. The word captain tells us that Naaman was the supreme commander of the armies of Syria. Okay? He was the army's highest ranking officer. And so when you think of Naaman, I want you to think of General. Dwight D. Eisenhower. I mean, that's how significant this man was. That would be his equivalent. But it goes on to say he was also a great man. That meant that he was a man of high social standing and prominence. But with that, he was also highly respected. He was highly regarded by the king of, of Syria because of his military victories. And finally, he was a valiant warrior. The word valiant used in the Old Testament, I didn't know this, I learned this, almost always means two things. That he was a man of great wealth and also a courageous warrior. But as you can see from the verse there, the author of 2 Kings goes on to tell us something that neither Naaman nor his king knew. That Naaman's military success it was not the primary result of it was not of his, because of his courage or his military skills. Rather, it was a result of God's sovereign plan and purpose. In this case, Naaman's success in his battles for his king with Israel was God's judgment on the nation of Israel 
because of the sins of his people. That's why we also read, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. You see, behind the scenes, unseen, unheard, directing all things, of course, is a sovereign God. And sometimes as a pastor, we always measure our success by the size of our congregation. Same thing that the disciples of John the Baptist suffered with. When Jesus arrived on the scene, naturally everyone flocked to him. If John the Baptist had the largest church at that time, when Jesus comes, guess where people were going? Jesus' church. And the disciples were worried, and they came to John the Baptist. He said, they're all going to him to be baptized. And what does John the Baptist say? No, he said that everything that you have, that I have, that we all have, is being given to us. From a sovereign God. But by the world's standards now, the author is telling us that Naaman was a successful person. Wealthy, highly regarded, great career. However, we then read a word that none of us wants to read or none of us wants to hear. It's a simple three-letter word. And we don't like it. But, see it there? But he was a leper. Because typically after the word but comes the problem, right? This is a human experience. We all have that one little butt that mars our lives. For Naaman, it was that he was a leper. And leprosy was like the AIDS of today. It made you an outcast because nobody wanted to catch the disease. In fact, in Leviticus 13, it said if you had the disease and you were in a place where people were, what were you required to do? Yell out, leper, unclean, 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 which is what my mother-in-law does when she comes to our house. She's unclean, unclean, unclean. But that's the first part, one who is highly regarded. But now we shift gears and we talk about the lowly regarded. Look at this verse. Now the Aramaeans or Syrians had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the lands of Israel... And she waited on Naaman's wife, and she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Now what I want you to notice here is that this is a remarkable little young girl. But the Old Testament word for young and little means pretty much the opposite of the word respected. And I believe that the author of 2 Kings is not only telling us that this little girl is young, but she is a person of no social standing, whatever. She's an afterthought or lowly thought of. And so it was no doubt humbling, I believe, for Naaman to have to act on the advice of this insignificant Israelite slave girl. But Naaman was desperate. And his healing and salvation are directly related, actually a triple, to the faithfulness of this young girl who was on the bottom rung of the Syrian social ladder. You see, God chooses to work through a humble servant. And I was reminded of what Paul said to the Corinthians, that God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. He's chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. The Son of God was exalted after he was humbled. 
And now we come to, in our story, really the introduction of the story between the dog and the rabbit. It's the problem of assumptions. And we can take solace in the fact that human beings really don't change much. The same problems we have, kind of predetermining how an event will play out or should play out in our minds, are the same problems that we'll find out that Naaman and the king of Syria had. We naturally assume situations still work out the way we think they should, right? You're done that, been guilty of that? If you don't raise your hand right now, you're lying to yourself. Okay. But let's take a look at some of the false assumptions here. Let's look at this verse here. It says, Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. They messed this up. Anyway, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive what this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now, see how he's seeking to quarrel against me. Did I mess up those slides? We're good to go? All right. Here's the first false assumption. Going to the wrong person. Now, before we look at these assumptions in more detail, I want to set the stage here that will some historical context I think will really help. You're Naaman, okay? You're a leper. You're now faced with a protocol problem. And it's a pretty big protocol problem. How does a Syrian military commander go about requesting the help of an Israelite prophet? Think about that. The prophet is the prophet of Yahweh, the one true God. This means that for all intents and purposes, Naaman will be admitting that his gods are what? They're powerless to heal him. And only Israel's God can do so. This also places Naaman in the very awkward position of having to travel to Israel, a country that he had often entered in his official position as a commander of the armies of Syria to attack it and to take prisoners. So he's not going to be a popular guy, is he? No. Now he needs help from an influential leader in Israel. And how does one handle a sticky situation like this? Well, unfortunately, Naaman's pride clouds his judgment. Instead of humbling himself and seeking the healing from the prophet directly, like he was told to by the little girl... Naaman leverages his relationship with the king of Syria to write a letter that politely demands that the king of Israel see to it that Naaman is healed. You see that? Now when you add that the generous gift that accompanied the letter, the king of Syria's request was one that the king of Israel could not refuse. See, Naaman's pride left him vulnerable to this false assumption. Number one, he goes to the wrong place person. Yes, the king of Israel was powerful, but there were limits to his power. And again, he was advised to go to the prophet because only the prophet had access to the power necessary to perform a miracle of healing. Now, the king of Syria assumed this as well, 
that there was a close relationship between the king of Israel and the prophet of Israel. So hooking up Nathan with the prophet should be easy. Who is this king of Israel? You heard of Ahab? You heard the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel? Who was the king at the time? Yeah. All right? Because Elisha with the S replaced Elijah with the J. And so there's not a good relationship between the prophet or prophet and the king. There was supposed to be, but there wasn't. And because of this, the king of Israel failed to see the solution. He had ceased, as all the kings had prior to him, quite frankly, to seek divine guidance. It never entered the king's mind to turn to Elisha for help when he was in trouble. But I think that the king of Israel's response is both funny and tragic. Let's take a look at it. It's funny in, in that the king of Israel knows he is incapable of curing a man of leprosy. We all know that, right? That's something only God can do. And this truth is so obvious that even Naaman and the king of Syria, Syria, they had to know this. I mean, there must be, therefore, an ulterior motive for sending this letter. They must be setting a trap. But it's tragic. And that shows that the nation of Israel, led by King Ahab, was now an apostate nation. They had completely turned away from God. Because as I said earlier, the text does not mention that King Ahab even knew that there were even prophets in Israel still. So it never entered his mind to send Naaman to Elijah the prophet. When a person or a nation rejects God, I want you to see this. It opens you up to paranoid, delusional thinking. The next false assumption we see is paying the wrong price. Look at what he brought. The value of 10 talents of silver... By the way, folks, that's 750 pounds of silver that he brought. 6,000 shekels of gold is 150 pounds of gold. And 10 changes of clothes is estimated to be in the millions of dollars at that time. But all the money in the world cannot buy a miracle. Because the price was not any amount of money. The price as Damien was going to find out, was faith and obedience. Let's look at the next false assumption. The story goes on. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and stood at that doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored by you, and you will be clean. So in spite of the king of Israel's faithlessness, Elijah heard that the king had torn his clothes. So he sent word to the king. And his words, no, make no mistake about this, folks. Make no mistake about this. His words to the king were a rebuke to the king in his distress. That was a completely inappropriate behavior. There was no need for the king to tear his garments. All he needed to do was send Naaman to Elijah to be healed. And in that way, guess what? Naaman would come to know that there was indeed a prophet in Israel, as it said in verses 8. And of course that leads 
to the next false assumption, which is, of course, expecting the red carpet treatment. So Naaman, the picture's in your mind. He arrives at Elisha's house, and he has a caravan of attendants. This is probably the time that Naaman started thinking or envisioned when he first began to entertain the idea that he could be healed. This is playing out the way he thinks it's going to play out. Because it must have been a most impressive sight to behold. Here's Naaman. He's a VIP. He's a revered and feared military commander. He has a letter from the king of Syria. He'd just come from the king of Israel. It would only be natural to assume that on his arrival, that Elijah would certainly come out and greet him and be impressed with his power and his prestige. Surely Elijah could not help but notice all the chariots parked outside his door, along with those who accompanied him. I mean, you couldn't miss him, right? Naaman would have liked to have been able to point out that he had come with silver and gold and fine garments to pay for Elijah's services. He could not imagine anyone not seizing this opportunity. But things did not go as Naaman imagined or expected. From what we can read, there is no indication that the king of Syria's letter was even read to Elisha. Or that anyone even had the chance to explain why Naaman had come. See, God works differently. As a prophet of God, Elisha would not necessarily have to be told why Naaman had come. Instead, Naaman is greeted by a mere servant with a simple and easy cure. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be stored to you, and you'll be clean. But Naaman's response reveals his pride in another false assumption. Let's take a look at that as the story goes on. But Naaman was furious, and he went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand out and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not these rivers, Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage. Here's false assumption number four, the wrong plan. See, the text is clear. What did Naaman expect? He expected that his miracle for pay would be performed with all the pomp and circumstance that, that such an occasion required. In Naaman's mind, he envisioned Elijah coming out personally, giving him his undivided attention. Naaman anticipated that the miracle would then be performed immediately in some dramatic fashion by calling on the name of Yahweh and waving the prophet's hand over the diseased skin. And then Naaman would be healed with the style and dignity that suited a man of his stature. And when Naaman hears this message communicated to him by a lowly servant, he becomes furious. He's insulted that he's not been treated in a manner worthy of his position. Because he expected to deal directly with the prophet and to take charge of his healing. He was insulted that he would have to be told to immerse himself. Worse yet, he was greatly angered that he would, had been told to immerse himself in the muddy waters of the Jordan. Because in his homeland, there were many beautiful rivers. They were clear, running water. 
And if he had to immerse himself in water, he would do so in one of those crystal clear rivers of Syria. Now, why is Naaman so angry? I mean, he's going to get what he wants, right? I mean, can you go to somebody and expect a healing and say, it's not going to happen? He doesn't get that. He says, I'm going to be healed. Yes, you're going to be healed. Here's what you do. But you see, he was offended because his pride had been wounded. If he were to be saved from this incurable disease, see, he wanted to be saved his way. In a way that was easy on his ego, which left him in control of the situation. Because it was humiliating enough for a Syrian celebrity to come to Israel and to seek healing from an Israelite prophet But to be told he must be healed in such a humiliating fashion was more than he was willing to tolerate. Fortunately for Naaman, his servants reasoned with him and prevailed. That's the next verses. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do something, some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? Verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. See, Naaman was desperately in need. He was willing to pay a very high price or to do something very difficult if necessary. And if Naaman was willing to do something great, why would he not happily do something small? Why be troubled by meeting a small demand when he is willing to meet a large demand? Of course, we know the answer again. It's pride. But Naaman grasped the logic of the argument from his servants, and he concedes. He goes to Jordan, dips himself seven times in those waters, and he comes forth after dipping the final time, and his skin is like what? that of a young child. See, he became like a child. And he was completely healed. See, the price was not millions of dollars in gold and silver and clothing. It was belief demonstrated by obedience. For some, that is a price far more expensive than gold or silver and clothing. And for some, it's a price they're simply unwilling to pay. Some people prefer the hard way, their way, and reject the easier way, God's way. As the story goes on, I think this is kind of funny, and I like this. It's what I call no profit for the prophet. When he, Naaman, returned to the man of God, Elijah, with all his company, and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, But in Israel, so please take a present from your servant now. But he said, as the Lord lives for whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Now Naaman was completely healed. He could not have been happier with the result of this visit to Israel. And so it's easy to see why he would want to meet with Elisha. And so the man who did not even see Elijah when he first arrived outside his house, now has the face-to-face conversation with the prophet. 
And Naaman's words are exactly what you'd hope to hear in a new believer. Here's a man who we would have called, and in the eyes of Israelites, a pagan at the time he first arrived in Israel. But after his healing, I mean, his words reveal a radical change. Even though Naaman came from a country that worshipped false gods, he was able to confess, look at verse 15, I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. And out of a grateful heart, Naaman offers to compensate the healer, but Elijah would receive no compensation because this was a work of God's grace. And he did not want Naaman to have any confusion on this point. Elisha did not want to leave room for Naaman to conclude that he had contributed in some measure to his healing. It was simply an act of God. And it leaves a great picture of, of what I call Naaman's salvation. A changed life in words and deeds. Look at verses 17 and 19. Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two, two mules load of earth. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there. And he learns, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace, so he de departed from him some distance. So not only is there a radical change in this man's words, now catch this, there's a radical change in this man's actions after his healing. Because Naaman is modeling for us what we call repentance, a repentant life. See, after his dip in the Jordan River, he was not only physically healed, he was also spiritually healed. Through his obedient faith. He is now a follower of who? Yahweh, the God of Israel, no longer following Rimon. See, it's one thing to say that God alone is God. But see, Naaman sought to actually apply his newly required knowledge. And the first area of his life to change was his personal worship. Now, it may seem strange to us. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Let me explain it to you, because this is a completely confusing request. He wants, he asks Elijah for two mule loads of earth to take back to Syria with him. Now, why would he do that? Because here's a man who had recently boasted that the waters of Syria were far superior to the waters of Israel. And now he finds Israelite soil more precious than Syrian soil. I mean, how can this be? Well, if you go way back in the book of Genesis and just listen to this for a moment... Do you remember the story of Jacob, one of the sons of Abraham? Where Jacob and Isaac, Isaac and Esau and Jacob? He's a grandson of, of Abraham. He was fleeing from his brother Esau because he had bargained Esau out of his birthright and had stolen Esau's blessing. Esau was the firstborn and received the blessing. But he was tricked and, and went to Jacob. And as Jacob was about to leave Israel, he has a dream in the night from the Lord, a vision as he's sleeping. His reaction is what I want us to pay attention to. Because in that dream, it's the dream of Jacob's ladder. He sees the angels 
coming up and down the ladder from heaven to earth. And then he hears this voice from the top of the ladder, and it says that, you know, I'm going to bless the nations of Israel through your descendants, and all the world will be blessed through you. And in verses Genesis 28, 16 and 19, it says this, Then Jacob woke up from his sleep, and he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. He was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is a gate of heaven. And early in the morning, Jacob took the stone which he had placed at his head and set it up as a standing stone and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of the Lord of that place Bethel, although formerly the name of the city was Luz. Now because of this dream, Jacob came to understand a very important truth. This is what we have to understand. God had chosen to administer his blessings to the world through Abraham and his offspring, the Jews. But God not only chosen to identify himself with a particular people, the Jews, but he identified himself with a particular place. What place was that? The land of Israel. And Jacob took special notice of the ground in which the latter in his dream had rested. This Israelite soil in which he had spent the night. He saw that the presence of God was particularly associated with the land of Israel. Thus, even though he was leaving that land, it was his intention to return to it in worship. Somehow, I don't know how, Naaman had come to grasp this same truth in some measure. Because if God's presence was associated with the land of Israel, then how could Naaman possibly worship God on Syrian soil? His solution? Well, take some Israelite soil with him. And on those two donkeys, Naaman took a little bit of Israel back to Syria with him. And it was on this soil that he would have spread out on the ground that he planned to worship the God of Israel from now on. So here was a man who was committed to the worship of the God he had just confessed as God alone. Folks, that is a radical change, is it not? But Naaman was also concerned about his worship in another area of his life, his work. Because as commander of the army of the king of Syria, it would seem that he was also the king's bodyguard. As such, he would accompany the king wherever the king went, providing him with protection. Of course, this included the king's worship of his heathen god at the temple of Rimon. And the king apparently would literally be leaning on Naaman's arm as he bowed down to his god. This would require Naaman to do what? bow down too. And Naaman assured Elijah that even though he might be bowing down with the king, he would no longer be worshiping Syrian gods. That was now part of his past. See, he knew that to truly worship God, he must worship God as God has instructed in God's way. He knew as well that to worship God alone, that they could worship no other gods. But see, again, Naaman's story, folks, gives us a picture of how someone goes to heaven after they die. It was a changed life in, in words and in deeds. How do we go to heaven when we die? There's so many different things out there. Well, number one, let me give you a couple of thoughts just from this story here. Number one, you must be desperate. You've got to want to go to heaven when you die. See, in his very first sermon, Jesus laid out the requirements to get into heaven, into the kingdom of heaven. 
Because his kingdom is reserved for those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, right? They have nothing to offer God to merit entrance into heaven. There are people who are broken over their sinful nature. They're humble before a holy God. And who hunger and thirst for a righteousness not of their own. The only solution to our sin problem, folks, is that we need help from someone else. Just like Naaman needed help. We need a Savior to rescue us from our sins and who will share his righteousness with us. Only then we'll we'll be able to get into heaven because you want to be with God who is perfectly righteous and holy. You want to be with him? Guess what? You have to be as perfect and as righteous and as holy as he is. And you can't do it. Nobody can do it. See, God will use any circumstance to bring us to a place of desperation. And for Naaman, what was it? It was leprosy to draw Nathan or Naaman to himself. Through suffering, Naaman found salvation. And God will bring you to a place of desperation to bring you into his kingdom. He cares for you that much. Now the hard part, you must humble yourself before God. Look at the humility Naaman demonstrated. First, he was humbled by his leprosy, and that made him a social outcast in most societies. Second, he humbly listened to a lowly regarded slave girl who was on the bottom rung of the Syrian social ladder. Third, in humility, he was forced to find healing in Israel, which he considered to be an inferior nation. And fourth, he was required to dip seven times in the muddy waters of the Jordan. You see, God uses humility to prepare you to be blessed. If you come to God his way, through humility, you'll be rewarded. In Naaman's story, we saw many false assumptions that had to be overcome, right? Well, in the same way, humility overcomes three false assumptions that I find that keep people out of heaven. The first false assumption is this. I'm good enough. The truth is this. You're a sinner because you're born with a sinful nature. And everyone is in the same boat for all have sinned and fall short of God's standard of righteousness. The theological term is total depravity or radical corruption. Basically, it means this. I don't have to teach my kids to lie and steal. I teach them to tell the truth and to be generous. Well, why? Because our nature is corrupt. We're born that way. And unfortunately for us, that sinful condition, it excludes us from heaven. So we are born into this world with one strike against us already. The second strike is that the penalty for our sin is death. That means eternal separation from God. So that's the first false assumption that humility destroys, that I'm good enough. Nobody is. The second one is I can get into heaven by living a good life. No matter how good a life you live, in the eyes of God, that your most righteous act before him is as a filthy rag. Well, why? Because you are stained, corrupted with sin. I don't like it. It is what it is. But I want to live in reality. 
And the third false assumption that humility destroys is that there are multiple ways to God. The Bible makes it clear there's only one way to get into heaven through Jesus Christ. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself said it very clearly. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I see humility destroying these false assumptions because in humility, again, Naaman dipped himself seven times in the muddy waters of the Jordan River and his flesh became like that of a child. Remember what Jesus said? You must become like a child to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And a child is humble. And a child depends. Naaman's story teaches us that we must come to God his way, not our way. And his way is by faith. And that's the other point. You must respond in faith. Very clear. Some of us will go home and watch football. Inevitably, you will see when they kick a field goal or an extra point, some will hold up the sign, John 3.16, right? We all know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So if I get eternal life through living a good life or through faith, belief in him, it's through belief in him. Naaman responded by faith. He didn't have to pay anything other than swallow his pride and in faithful obedience do what Elijah had instructed him. Here's the great thing about this story, by the way. What happens when you respond in faith? Yeah, yeah, the healing was great. The physical healing was great for him. But if you go back to verse 11, Naaman says this. Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. But again, behold, I thought. But after responding in faith, in verse 15, Naaman says, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth. I thought, to I know. I thought, to I know. This 18 inches from here to here is the longest distance you will ever, ever travel in your life. What a difference a dip in the right water makes, right? And finally, you, know, you must be desperate. You must humble yourself before God because you've got a sin problem. You're a sinner and you need a savior. God provided that solution through his son, Jesus Christ. It's that simple. But you've got to come to God his way, believing that Jesus is the only way, and by faith, inviting him into your life. And when you do that, the next thing is this. And I don't know how to word this, but I want to explain it somewhat. You must live a changed life to prove you are saved. What I mean by that is that if you truly want to be saved, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sins to go to heaven, you should get his life in you. You get a, a new heart, a transformed heart. That heart will manifest itself in a different life because we live from our hearts. There should be a change in your life as you respond out of a transformed, grateful heart to the eternal life God has given you. You see, Naaman got this. 
Because he immediately applied his newfound faith and changed the way he worshipped and worked. This is what a repentant life looks like. Because you know all that separates all of us sinners from eternal life in Jesus Christ is the willingness to do things God's way. And when we become willing to come the way God has laid out for us, then we will receive eternal life through Jesus Christ. See, Naaman was changed because he did it God's way. And he not only got a physical healing, but he also got a new heart. He was saved. And he proved it by the life that he lived. That's the way it worked for Naaman, and that's the way it works for us. And so it's a really simple application point, and I want to be very clear on this this morning, is that if you are here this morning, and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, let me be very clear on what I mean by this. You are created to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ and with God. Your sin separates you from God. You are the penalty for everyone who sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God. But the penalty for that sin is death, eternal separation from God. That's hell. God says, I don't want that. I want you with me. I'll provide a way for you to get to me through Jesus Christ. You simply need to put your faith and trust in his death on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. I will accept his death as your death, give you his righteousness, then you can enter into a relationship with me. Not a religion. I'm not talking about following a new religion. It's a personal relationship with the living God. And see, even Elisha knew that because he said, no, it's that I stand before God. God is living and he is in a fellowship with him. But you see, you've got to make that transfer from yourself to Jesus. And the way we typically do that is you can express your faith and your desire to to go to heaven when you die, to surrender your life to Jesus Christ through simply saying a prayer. And the prayer doesn't save you, it's what's in your heart. And so when I was growing up, it was simple. A prayer is something like this, Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I put my faith and trust in you and your death to pay the penalty for my sins and to give me eternal life like you promised. Amen. It was that simple. We call it a sinner's prayer. I don't care what you call it. It was an expression of the desire of my heart when I was 10 years old. And so I want to ask you this morning, if you are feeling God move in your heart, if you have not made that decision, then I want to invite you to come forward right now and make that decision. Take God up on his offer of salvation. So everyone can close their eyes, bow their heads. And if you've not made that decision, I exhort you to make that decision. You're not promised tomorrow. And I want to fill heaven with people. I want to depopulate hell. I want to populate heaven. This is why we're here. And so I invite you to come forward and do that.
right now. We'll take a few moments, and then we'll close our service. Maybe there are those of you that would like to make this decision, but you're just too uncomfortable coming down front and doing that. And maybe you simply want to repeat this prayer after me as an expression of the desire of your heart. You can probably do that right now as I pray. Just think in your heart and kind of repeat these words after me. Lord Jesus, I need you. I desperately need you. I am a sinner and I need a savior for my sins. I thank you for offering your son as the full and final payment for all my sins and for giving me his righteousness. I place my faith in his death and resurrection. And I ask that you would give me eternal life as you promised. And I look forward to walking in a new relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with a song. Um, after the song, um, we have refreshments in the fellowship hall. There are donuts and coffee. That's Debbie's cue to get out of here and set that up. So please feel free. We don't normally do this, but there are legendary donuts. Not just donuts. These are legendary donuts, whatever that means. You know what that means? That's code for they were really expensive. <laughs> so... Please, for our visitors, uh, you know, go out there. We'll, some of us will be there, and we'd love to get to know you and have some donuts and coffee because we don't have enough caffeine in this state anyways, do we? We need more. So let's pray, and we'll close with the song. Father, may you be glorified as we close with our voices worshiping, praising you. Amen.